Does binding and loosing refer to temple, Mormon temple ceremonies? No, it doesn't. We'll talk about that next on Polygamy. What love is this? If you've watched very many of our programs, you will have noticed that we answer viewers' questions and also refute Mormonism's errors with biblical doctrines. And we use biblical evidence to show that polygamy was never God's plan and that generally the scriptures they use are most often taken out of context, which in turn results in all kinds of bad doctrine. The topic today uh, that illustrates this point is Mormonism's teachings of binding and loosing, and the woman is not without the man, and the man is not without the woman. We quote from an LDS source. Yes, eternal marriage is necessary to be saved and exalted in the highest mansions of heaven, where God himself dwells. Neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. And then they refer 1 Corinthians 11.11 Corinthians, uh, 11, 11. for their Bible verse. And if you want to go and read the context, it would, might be a good thing for you to do. But they use the biblical vo uh, verse to support their idea of eternal marriage, despite the fact that Jesus said there are no marriages after this life. And Romans says the marriage covenant ends at death. Now, the passage that they use from 1 Corinthians is yanked out of context. And besides that, they don't trust the Bible to be correct anyway. <laughs> but we'll quote the verses <laughs> to yeah. get the context. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 through 11. <clears throat> For man is not made, was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Is the context marriage, eternal marriage in this? Do you see anything like that in these verses? No. <laughs> the, the context, actually, if you read the whole passage is the proper form of worship in a congregation. It's not marriage, it's not polygamy, or the necessity of being married to be eligible for celestial heaven. But that's what they've turned it into. This passage is actually reminding us of the creation account of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In creation, reproductive sex was not involved when God created Adam or when he created Eve, nor is there a biblical teaching or even a suggestion that marriage is required for heaven. It's not there in that passage they quote. Now, verses 8 and 9 are simply reminding uh, people that man needs the woman and the woman needs the man in order to reproduce. But the source of everything is God, of course. It is God who created reproduction and made it that both male and female are necessary to reproduce. They equally depend upon each other, and they both depend on God. Now, the man cannot reproduce alone, and neither can the woman. No matter what science tries, they can't. Right. And that is what the text is telling us. It has absolutely nothing to do with eternal marriage or the necessity for a person to be married to go to high heaven. The next Bible phrase that they incorrectly throw around is, Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven making it appear that temple sealing rituals fulfill that statement. 
but it has no connection, nor is it referring to their temple rituals as they claim. Now, again, context is important. It is so important. It's critical in interpreting a Bible passage. The phrase um, is from Matthew chapter 18, and the context is how to deal with discipline (laughs) in the church congregation. So let's read the context. Yeah, verses 15 through 20 in chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, the context, of course, like I said, determines interpretation. And this passage is dealing, the context is disagreements within a church congregation, with the individuals in the church congregation. Now, unity is necessary to properly solve church-related difficulties. And it has nothing to do with binding or sealing humans together for eternal relationships. It's not there. (laughs) Did you see anything in there that would even hint that's what it was referring to? It's very bad interpretation and deceitful to remove a statement from context and then manufacture an eternal doctrine from it. And that's what they've done. Now, we have some quotes confirming their wrong interpretation of this passage. Now, this is from James E. Faust, uh, I think, a talk given in uh, 2006, The Restoration of All Things. Elijah the prophet appeared and gave to them the keys of this dispensation, including the sealing power to bind in heaven that which is bound on earth within the temples. little added phrase there. That's big time. Thus prophets in previous gospel dispensations presented their keys to the prophet Joseph Smith in this, the dispensation of the fullness of times spoken of by the apostle Paul to the Ephesians. So... (laughs) He has added to this, added the, the Mormon temples in on this. Right. And the, there were no, in, in Elijah's day or in any of the Old Testament days, there were no temple marriages. There were no temple ceilings right. in any previous dispensation. And they twist and they tweak the Bible passages to support their unbiblical doctrines. And then people listen to it and they think that it's from the Bible. And so they believe it. The 2001 teacher's manual says, quote, only through temple marriage can men and women receive every eternal blessing? And they quote from Doctrine and Covenants and from the Eternal Marriage Teacher's Manual um, of 2001. Now, simply put, this is just a big fat lie. (laughs) God blesses us because He is good. Many of our blessings are given when we don't deserve them. Eternal marriage has nothing to do with eternal blessing. It's all about Jesus. And remember, early Mormonism taught celestial marriage was polygamy. That's important to keep in mind. Now, the LDS has changed the definition of celestial marriage, but they also claim God doesn't change. So how can both be true? It's true. Now, in 
18 early, or 1835, about the same time that Joseph Smith was getting ready to populate his harem, we read this statement in their Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah, this is from the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, section 101, verse 4. Inasmuch as this Church of Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy, we declare that we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman but one husband, except in the case of death, where either is at liberty to marry again. They lied. Yeah, they sure did. <laughs> and they continued to lie because this remained in the Doctrine and Covenants until 1876. And then they removed it and replaced it with Section 132, commanding a man to have multiple wives. But by then, they had been teaching the requirement, <laughs> the requirement for and living polygamy for over 40 years. But also remember Jacob 2.27 from their own scriptures, Doctrine right. or Book of Mormon, where it says, Wherefore, my brethren, hear me and hearken to the word of the Lord. For there, there shall not any man among you have, save it be one wife and concubines, he shall have none. So we have so many confusing and contradicting commandments, especially regarding polygamy. Mormon author Bruce Baconkey gave the following definition of the term concubine. All down through the history of God's dealings with his people, including those with the house of Israel, concubines were legal wives married to their husbands in the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. Anciently, they were considered to be secondary wives, that is, wives who did not have the same standing in the caste system then prevailing as did those wives who were not called concubines. Now, <laughs> I've read quite a bit of Bruce McConkie's stuff, as you probably have yeah, as well. Yeah. And he kind of reminds me of Orson Pratt. He just, Said, you know... Says stuff. <laughs> says stuff, <laughs> yeah. Stuff. <laughs> Here he teaches that concubines were legal wives married in the new and everlasting covenant. Now, we'd sure like to have a chapter and verse to prove this statement, but he didn't give us one. But if the Old Testament polygamists practiced what Mormonism calls the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, why doesn't the Bible tell us about it? When Jesus talked about marriage, why didn't he tell us about it? I think he might have mentioned it. You'd think he would. <laughs> now, remember at this point that there are thousands and thousands of manuscript evidence proving the accuracy of our Bible. McConkie claimed the ancient concubines were married into this new and everlasting covenant. A covenant that didn't even exist until 1831 and wasn't made public until 1843. Yet the Old Testament folks were under that covenant. If they were under that covenant, then it can't be called new. That's true. <laughs> and since the LDS have shelved polygamy, it cannot have been everlasting. Oh, boy. They go to great lengths to show evidence for their odd doctrines, but when the Bible doesn't support such evidence, they claim you can't trust it. This is a religion of doctrinal convenience and mutation. Notice the statement that eternal marriage is required for eternal life. Yeah, this is from an apostle, Robert D. Hales, The Plan of Salvation, from October of 2015. Now, this the, is interesting because this is 2015, not very yeah, long recent. ago. Yeah. The Father's plan provides us the way to inherit eternal life, the life our heavenly parents led. In the plan, neither is the man without the woman, nor the woman without the man in the Lord. 
The very essence of eternal life includes the eternal marriage of man and woman, which is an essential part of becoming like our heavenly parents. Or like God, or a God, you know, in Mormon in Mormon language. That's Notice true. how he uses that phrase, the man isn't without the woman, and the woman isn't, isn't without, without the, man. the man. And so they've taken that out of context, which you've already shown, we've already shown the context, and how they've taken that out and turned it into eternal marriage is necessary for eternal life. An essential part, he said. The very essence of eternal life includes eternal marriage. That's what he said. Whatever happened to Jesus? <laughs> You know, when did Jesus ever move over a Savior and let eternal marriage take his place? And then we'd really like a Bible backup verse for this next statement. Yeah. Consider this fact. Your marriage is a laboratory for Godhood. <laughs> did you know that during your marriage with Carla? Well, yeah. While you're in, still, in was, the background, it was kind of like we were learning the the skills needed to be to be a god to live huh? forever in marriage and have children and all that to, stuff to be yeah. a god though because yes. that's what it oh, says yes. to be uh -huh. a god yeah wow that was i expected to be a god i mean <laughs> i've taken but you, a lesser your marriage road now, was the laboratory to become a god yeah a celestial marriage our family our our marriage our yeah that's wow i mean i never put the word laboratory to it but it was the yes the idea that i would become a god and we were down here to be tested and tried and tested in that things. laboratory and you yeah. come out on the other door with us being a god yeah, as long yeah. as we did all the things we were supposed to we we're gonna be in good shape <laughs> is right. this is this little, true there's a little pride there i think <laughs> have you involved. discovered that this is true or yeah. not or yeah, i've <laughs> discovered it isn't true actually Certainly isn't, uh, it's not no. true is it Ephesians <laughs> tells us that marriage of a man and a woman reflects the love and grace and provision that God pours out on his people in his covenant love it's not a laboratory for godhood polygamous attempt to prove a doctrine of plural marriage from bible passages like the ones that we've discussed the fact of the matter is when these passages are studied and taken in their proper context, we learn, number one, polygamy did exist, but it was not God's plan, purpose, or preferred arrangement. Two, polygamy is forbidden, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Three, polygamy was never commanded by God. At best, it was endured patiently by Him, by the same way other sins were and are tolerated by Him. But there will be a day of reckoning for all those unrepentant. Four, polygamy resulted in a great deal of unnecessary grief and heartache for everyone involved as it does today. There's no positive passage in the Bible of a plural marriage family. And five, God's purpose for the marriage relationship from the very beginning until now is one man and one woman in a loving, covenant, faithful relationship disputing all of what Mormonism said about marriage. True. Another argument, uh, we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit here, but it's another argument that I recently heard to support polygamy that I hadn't heard before. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, different 
polygamy groups embrace various ideas. And I think this one was discussed in Ogden Kraut's book that dealt with the topic of Jesus being married, setting us an example. Now, we've discussed this idea several times before, but this is, this is a new twist on that idea. They claim that Jesus had plural wives because females gave Jesus ordinances preparing for his burial, which only wives were allowed to do. We quote the, ver the passage that they've taken this from. Matthew 26, 6 through 12. <clears throat> now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial." So they take this and just twist it only a wife to, do that to prove something. that he was a polygamist. Obviously, some polygamists had the unsupported idea that these were ordinances where a body was prepared for burial and only wives could perform them, but that's not in the text. I think it was Orson Pratt, the early Mormon guru on polygamy, <laughs> that first tried to prove their belief that Jesus was a polygamist, and Pratt used this argument in his book, The Seer. But there is no biblical evidence at all for such an idea, nor is it a normal Jewish custom at the time of Jesus to have plural wives prepare the body yeah. for, for burial. Now, there were some women that had put together spices uh, with which they were going to intended to anoint Jesus's body, his dead body, but he resurrected before they were able to do that. Pro-polygamists are stretching and adding to the text to say what it does not say, to say what they want it to say. But there must be historical and manuscript evidence that what they claim is accurate, and this idea definitely is not correct and has no historical foundation or evidence at all. Another point we'd like to make about Jesus being a polygamist. Um, most Mormon fundamentalists, and even some LDS, believe that he had several plural wives. If that were true, how did he support them? That's a good point. Who provided for them? Jesus wasn't rich. He wasn't well-to-do. Neither was Mary and Joseph. Jesus was born in a barn. He didn't own any land or a home or a business. In fact, his itinerant ministry was supported by followers. Jesus often slept outside. He told Herod he had no place to lay his head. We quote. <laughs> From Luke 9, chapter 9, verses 55 and 58. But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And from 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Rich in heaven rich and in came heaven. down here yeah. and became a, a living as a poor human being. So he's even saying the animals have a place to stay at night, but he, <laughs> did, he didn't. Is Jesus going to marry multiple wives and sire lots and lots of children and expect others to take care of and support his large family? or leave them alone during his extensive travels to fare for themselves? 
Would our perfect Savior treat his family like that? No, polygamists today do that. But Jesus would never have stooped to such neglect and cruel behavior. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5.8, we've quoted before, the Bible warns men not to neglect providing for their own families. Mm -hmm. And Jesus was without sin. We know that he could never have behaved against God's will. God's will is not polygamy, and it is God's will for a man to support his family. This and many other reasons that we've previously discussed <laughs> is evidence that Jesus could not have been a polygamist. Their next claim is another Bible passage, strange because this has nothing to do with plural marriage or giving birth to eternal families in Mark. This, this is from Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, so of course, we'll... this doesn't apply to plural marriage. And notice the word wife or wives is not in there. No. It now, it is in the Matthew passage that says this, but it uses a, a singular word. It says wife. Oh. The other words are plural, mothers, sisters, brothers, and all that, but it doesn't use the plural in wife. Well, it says wife. It's very, very significant. It is isn't extremely it? significant. Yeah. So, the, how this passage um, actually applies to marriage is beyond the text and context because it's it, having hundreds of children may fit into the practice of poly polygamy today, <laughs> but it certainly isn't teaching, this verse isn't teaching a requirement or even an allowance for polygamy and hundreds of kids in your family. The focus and content is following Jesus Christ despite the cost and despite the persecutions and the mocking and the shunning for those who do follow him. The saving gospel is not plural marriage. It is simply Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, resurrected from the grave, defeating death. Rejecting or adding anything to that gospel or taking anything from it is forbidden and carries a curse. Polygamy is an add-in to the simple and soul-saving gospel of Jesus. And the next argument that we've talked about in the past, but we'll quickly address again because we hear it so often. The New Testament teaches that church leaders must be the husband of one wife. Polygamists claim that the language is saying the leader must have at least one life in order to be a leader. But again, they need to check out Bible scholars and, and those who know the original language and the grammar of those original writings. And when you do that, you'll discover that the passage actually is telling the New Testament church that if the church leader, elder, or deacon is married, he must be a one-wife husband. Now, this is from Barnes Notes on the Bible. It is the most obvious meaning of the language, and it, would be, and it would doubtless be thus understood by those to whom it was addressed at a time when polygamy was not uncommon to say that a man should have but one wife would be naturally understood as prohibiting polygamy. Okay. Yeah. Now, and, and you know, the best Bible scholars independently agree that this is what it says in the original Greek. And anybody can check it out for themselves. But you have to go, don't go to your Mormon teacher. Go to a Bible Greek language 
uh, commentary on that passage. And they will all agree, like I say, they all independently agree. And I, I really dug into this one. Yeah, I, I do in most of them that deal right. with the polygamy. And, and independently, they all agree that it, must, it means a one-wife husband. Hmm. So polygamists, of course, they don't dig deep into, into their word studies at all in, no. the, in the original language. You know, and, and I find so interesting, this is just an aside, we have all kinds of concordances and Bible dictionaries and customs of the times of the Bible times and, and um, different translations and the original words that we can go to and, and definitions and really that we can find and really get yeah. what each word means. Yeah. And the Book of Mormon has nothing it doesn't have an it has nothing from the original document that's Joseph right. Smith used. It has zero. Yeah, that's so true. they can they can put any definition they want to any of their words, and you don't have anything to test it with. No, that's right. We have stuff that we can test it with. Now polygamists uh, use the unjust, unjustified logic to justify polygamy, and of course the LDS use it to undergird their temple marriages and sealings where they seal people together for eternity, neither of which is the focus of Scripture and which they often take out of context, which, like we've shown. Yeah. Another excellent example for this treatment of Scripture is very recently a polygamous man was confronted with Leviticus 18.18. Uh, we quote the yeah, verse. Just to quote that. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Now, his response to this, and this was just last week, his response to this verse is that that means that a man is not to have group sex with his wife and her sister. But where's the group, group sex as part of the context? <laughs> and notice the verse says, while her sister is still alive. Context is so important. Who would have group sex with a dead sister anyway, <laughs> or a dead wife? That's right. This is just an example of the twisting and contextual perversion by those in Mormon polygamy of what God has said. Hmm. Mormon polygamists take sisters for plural wives and have from the beginning. Joseph Smith took five sets of sisters for plural wives. And polygamy today continues to do the very thing that God has prohibited. Twisting and tweaking what he said to make it sound like something else. God's purpose for every human is not centered on marriage or polygamy. But that kind, but, but, but that each one of us would have a loving and faithful personal relationship with him through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Anything else is adding to or taking from God's word, and he warns us not to do that. That's right. And so as we discussed many times, they quote from the Bible to defend their dogma. Yeah, when we use the Bible, they scoff and <laughs> say the Bible can't be trusted. Yeah, that's so true. they have a double standard in Sad. how they deal with Scripture. Very interesting stuff. Well, it is. <laughs> it's frustrating sometimes yeah. to go through the, their thinking. Thank you. Thank you. You, well, again. you, you know, we love our families. And for the truth of God's word is what propels us to produce programs like we've just done. We desire all those who are held in bondage to Joseph Smith and his doctrines to discard the filter of Mormon doctrines and take a clean, fresh look at the Bible and what God has revealed about himself and about marriage in the Bible. Anyone who honestly wants to know God's truths will find it. If you seek with all your heart and if you're willing to see the truth and accept it when God shows it to you. Our faith should be in him alone. 
It includes nothing else for salvation but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The Bible alone for doctrine is where we get our doctrine, and grace alone for eternal life. Anything else is a false gospel which God does not acknowledge or accept. Thank you for watching. This has been the audio podcast of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. Polygamy, What Love Is This? is produced by A Shield and Refuge Ministry. More information on this program, including the video version of it, can be found at whatloveisthis.tv. If you have any questions or need help getting free from Mormon fundamentalism, write us at contact at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 1-800-877-425-9993.